if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, Freedom, Vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu. An interesting story in a publication called The Conversation, why early Christians wouldn't have found the Christmas story's virgin birth so surprising. Well, it draws upon what is now kind of standard objection to the Christian virgin birth, which is, well, all these pagan religions in the past, Greco-Roman religions and many others, have some version of a virgin birth. Now, that is true. But if you actually dig down into the details, how much do they really resemble the claims made by Christianity that the second person of the Trinity was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary in order to be the Savior of the world? Welcome back to Issues Etc. Dr. Adam Francisco joins us to answer that question. Do Christians borrow the virgin birth story from other ancient religions? He's adjunct professor of history at Concordia University, Chicago, and scholar in residence and director of academics for 1517. Adam, welcome back. Hi, Todd. How central is the virgin birth to Christian teaching? I'd say it's very central in that it's enshrined in the creed, but even more important than that, the scriptures, Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew and the gospel according to Luke, uh, make the very point that, that Mary was a Parthenos, which can only really be translated as virgin. The author of the piece that occasions our conversation suggests that the early Christians relied on the Septuagint's translation of Isaiah 7.14, that Greek word, Parthenos, that the early Christians relied on that to bolster their belief in the virgin birth. How do you respond to that? Well, if what's implied is that uh, Matthew wrote that into his his gospel because it just sort of had to be rather than that's what actually happened then i'd have a i have an issue with that i think we don't know that matthew was reading the the septuagint as far as we know he was reading a, a hebrew bible or hebrew old testament so i don't know the, the author of that the article you mentioned i don't know that that's really grounded in any sort of evidence it could be the case, but at the same time, it might just be that Matthew and Luke are just recording what was reported to them as having happened. And that it did fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 17 is important. It's a, without sounding crass, a, a happy coincidence, but uh, it's certainly much more than that. Of course, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, just like Jesus fulfills many, you know, dozens and dozens, if not more, 
uh, messianic prophecies throughout the, the Hebrew Bible. The author also says that the virgin birth wasn't really much of an issue for early Christians until the Christological controversies of the 3rd and 4th centuries. Is that true? Well, throughout the article, there are statements that the author makes that make me wonder what the subtext is. If the author is saying that the virgin birth wasn't a big deal for the earliest Christians, you know, first two to three hundred years, because it was not really even thought of or a doctrine yet, then I'd take serious issue with it. The author meant was that Jesus was born of a virgin. It didn't surprise the early Christians because there were all sorts of old tales in the ancient world of miraculous births, sometimes, although I think probably more rare than than uh, is made out. Uh, then, then that that makes good sense. There are, I mean, countless accounts of miraculous births throughout Greco-Roman literature, ancient Mesopotamian literature. You find in the like Hindu and Buddhist traditions accounts of miraculous births. And we don't know, you know, what exactly the authors of the New Testament or the earliest Christians were reading in terms of extra-biblical material. But certainly, oral tradition—it uh, was quite prominent to describe. For example, the founder, the founding brothers of Rome, Romulus and Remus, as being children of at least one divine parent. That was just common in the ancient world. It's really hard to read ancient literature and not come across these sorts of tales. Some claim that the, the teaching regarding Jesus among Christians was fluid up until the time of those church councils that codified and formulated a lot of the things that Christians believe from Holy Scripture regarding Christ. Is there any evidence for this that kind of Christians didn't really care or know much about who Jesus was up until that time? In a word, I'd say no, there is no evidence of that. At the same time, I would say that the first 300 years before you get, for example, the Nicene Creed, there are different versions of Christianity, but I'd have to quickly add by that, I mean there are heretical forms of Christianity that popped up. So, for example, in the early church uh, historian Eusebius's account of the early church, he talks about a, a Gnostic Christian named Basilides. Uh, we don't have anything anymore that he wrote. I'm not even sure that he wrote anything down, but he certainly, Eusebius tells us, was teaching in the early 2nd century already that Jesus was not put to death on a cross because Jesus didn't have a physical body to begin with. So you can find things like that in the early church. They are by no means considered by anybody that is actually in the Christian church as a an acceptable Christian confession, they are certainly heretical communities that more often than not borrowed from Greco-Roman mythology and sort of took that mythology and, and fused Jesus, some some account of Jesus into that pre-existing narrative. Decades ago, it was quite popular, even you can trace this back maybe two centuries even, to say something or believe something along the lines of 
Christian doctrine developed, for example, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, it's still repeated in even scholarly works like Bart Ehrman's text that there would be no doctrine of the deity of Jesus if it wasn't for the Council of Nicaea in the 320s, which is a, a interesting claim, but from a historian's perspective, really kind of odd when you ha- have even, we have one very early pagan account. I think it's a very early 2nd century, maybe late 1st century, that refers to Christians gathering together every Sunday morning and singing hymns to Jesus as if he was divine. So that Christian doctrine developed, especially these more miraculous doctrines, if you will, that they developed and really weren't in place until the 4th century. That's a common assertion. It just is not supported by the evidence. In fact, the evidence says, tells us something quite to the contrary. The author of the piece cites three, and you said there are many, many, but three Greco-Roman divine birth stories that he says would have been familiar to early Christians. Let's go through them one by one, beginning with Perseus. How does it resemble or does it resemble the biblical account? Well, Say the curious thing with the three the author mentions and the the dozens and dozens of other accounts is the only reason why they could be said to resemble the Christian doctrine or the biblical doctrine uh, that Jesus was born of a virgin is because some scholar since the time of the Enlightenment has said as such. If you go back and read the primary texts that we have concerning these myths. There's no resemblance uh, whatsoever. So the first is Perseus. As a historian, you know, historians are notorious and probably oftentimes um, or despised, but uh, you know, we oftentimes shake it. We shake our head at historians because we're so tentative on things. It's really hard to talk with certainty about the, the ancient world, especially if you go before, say, the 5th century BC. But Perseus is oftentimes regarded as one of the founders of Greek civilization. Not the only one, but one of them. And he's, in some of these mythological accounts we have across different sources, it says that he is the product or the result of Zeus, the chief god in the the Greek pantheon of gods, having some sort of, not even sexual relation with his mother Danae, but the way the myth typically goes is is Zeus causes a, a rain to fall upon Danae made of gold, and from that uh, she gets pregnant, and, and out comes Perseus, who also was, uh, your listeners might recognize the name, but they'd probably be more familiar with his great-grandson, Hercules. But there is a mention in some of the mythological tales that Danae was a a virgin, that this wasn't just a a miraculous birth, but a miraculous birth because Danae was, in fact, a virgin. But it's actually not that in the source material. The second one is uh, concerning Eon. Your listeners might recognize that name, especially in connection to the Ionian territories of Asia Minor, or what we call Turkey today, uh, over there on the, the western coast of Turkey. Uh, where you had lots of Greek city-states. Eon is said to be the son of uh, Apollo, who, like, is pretty common in Greek literature, who was raped by, or who raped a, a human, Crisa. 
So while this isn't a virgin birth, it is a miraculous birth in that one of the parents is, is God. And Eon goes on to found those Greek city-states will be sort of the central cause of the Greco-Persian Wars. The other myth that the article refers to is the, the miraculous or the alleged miraculous birth of the gray 4th century BC. The story is, and there's, there's a couple accounts of it, and they don't differ wildly, but Alexander's father was King Philip of Macedon. His mother was involved in some, I guess we might call it a secret or mystery religion that uh, was centered rolling around in like a coffin like structure filled with snake. Uh, so she was involved in some kind of weird religious rituals, but the, the way the myths usually run in that particular context, uh, Zeus looks down and sends a thunderbolt and, and I guess zaps Alexander's mother and uh, in doing so impregnates her and Alexander comes out the, the son of Zeus, even though Philip the Macedon was completely unaware of it. There are others that maybe, I, I don't think they get any closer, more um, interesting, like uh, Mithras, the ancient Persian god. You can find some statuary that dates to, I, I want to say, 2000 BC that tells us this religion is very, very old. Modern scholars sometimes allege that Mithraism is one of the primary sources behind the the development or writing down and, and passing on of the the story of Jesus. And they, they say so for, for a number of reasons. Uh, you can find some Mithric texts that allege that Mithras was born miraculously, born of a virgin perhaps, that as he got older, uh, he performed miracles, that he died and came back to life, and so on. The interesting thing with all this is Mithraism is indeed a very old religion. You know, 2000 BC, if not earlier, there's a statuary, statue ravings to Mithras uh, on them in the far uh, eastern parts of what we call Iran today or ancient Persia. None of that statuary, though, refers to Mithras being born of a virgin or being born on December 25th, as some uh, scholars will claim about Mithras. You don't get those close parallels to the story of Jesus until much later in the development of Mithraism. In fact, Edwin Yamauchi is the, the primary scholar on this, but he has done, he's looked at all the sources, done all the research on this, and he says, where you get Mithras born miraculously on December 25th, performing miracles as he gets older, and those other parallels to the Gospels, that doesn't make its way into the Mithric religion until late 2nd, more likely 3rd century, when uh, Mithraism had moved from the east into the Mediterranean rim and it had kind of captured the imagination of a good portion of Rome's military. And was, in the, the late 2nd and early 3rd century, one of Christianity's main competitors. And so what Yamauchi argues is that it seems rather than Christians borrowing from the Mithric uh, religion as their source material, the actual opposite took place. That, uh, if you will, missionaries of Mithraism, uh, those people working to convince Roman soldiers to adopt the, the beliefs and the practices of the 
Mithric secret uh, religion or mystery religion, they were borrowing from Christianity to make Mithraism as attractive, if not more attractive, than Christianity. So what makes the Bible's claims of Jesus' conception, but especially his person and work, different from any other tale of a divine conception found in paganism? There's a lot to talk about here. I, I'll limit it to just, just two, I guess. Uh, one is just the historical nature of it all. One of the interesting things about the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is if you compare them alongside all the other religious texts we have from the ancient world, all the, the mythologies of the ancient world. And again, there's just there's so many of them. If Some of your listeners may have had some sort of a classical education. If you just read the first pieces of Greek literature are just riddled with mythology from, for example, Theogony, where gods are procreating with anything and everything, it seems. If you look at the Gospels and compare them to these, these sources, the authors are pretty intent on being honest and factual. The Gospel of Luke, being a historian, the Gospel of Luke is, I mean, I love them all, but it's my choice because there's just so much rich historical detail. And Luke, in a way, purposely puts all these places and to, if you will, secular political affairs and officials in a way that just feels like you're reading history, but also it doesn't just feel like it. You could actually go and, and check up on it. Um, you can go take a trip to the Holy Land, and it's not that everything is known for certain, but you can kind of use the gospel, if you will, for getting around to, to understand the the life of Jesus. You can't really do that with these other texts. There's a virgin birth, or at least a miraculous birth in the Hindu tradition. If, you, if you're familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, the, the primary text for the Hare Krishna version of Hinduism, it's filled with all sorts of historical events or allegations of historical, but not one of the places named in the text or the person's military leaders in particular uh, named the text. There's there's no record of them them whatsoever. And that's the case with all these mythologies. Is there uh, feel like what we would call mythology, whereas Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are different, qualitatively speaking. In fact, Luke starts his gospel, the first four, maybe it's five verses, with a bit of a prologue on why he was writing and what his method was. And it parallels in many ways the way Greco-Roman historians would start their accounts of history, where they would say, this particular event, because oral tradition has gotten it confused or something, and I've consulted this material, or I've asked these people, or I've gone on these journeys to check things out. Luke isn't that detailed, but um, he's given you a bit of his, his uh, historiography or his, his philosophy of history right up front. The second thing that makes the Christian narrative of the virgin birth, the life and teachings, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus different than all these other mythologies is, of course, the the theological substance uh, behind it. And this is kind of a trite way of putting it, but all religions, every single one of them, minus Christianity, teach that in some way, shape, or form, you have to be afraid of the gods and in order to appease their anger, you have to do certain things, whether it's offer sacrifices or performing great feats of 
military might or whatever it might be. You have to, you have to do all these things in order to win the favor of the gods, whereas Christianity teaches, of course, the, the direct opposite of that, that you can't, in fact, do anything to really appease God because God already loves you in the first place and loves you so much that he sent his son, born of a virgin, to, to suffer and die for you. Of course, it's, there's a lot more to that, but that's, those, I would think, are the two biggest differences. Dr. Adam Francisco is our guest. He is adjunct professor of history at Concordia University of Chicago, answering the question, did Christians borrow the virgin birth story from other ancient religions? So how do, would, he, would we respond simply if someone tries to assert this to us at, over the water cooler or at the office? It's the most wonderful time. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle Tired of an endless loop of pop Christmas music? Coming December 24th, sacred music for the Christmas season. LutheranPublicRadio.org Serenity. Stability. Solemnity. Lutheran Public Radio. Sacred music for the Christmas season. Coming Christmas Eve at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're answering the question, did Christians borrow the virgin birth story from other ancient religions? Dr. Adam Francisco is our guest. You won't find any myths in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, although this is a book that is a collection of children's books about Christmas. It is all based entirely on real history, Jesus actually being born of a virgin to be our Savior. Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection can be found on our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Ask for the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, 1-800-325-3040. 
So in summary here, Adam, when someone claims that early Christians simply borrowed the idea of Jesus' divine conception from pagan legends, how should we respond? Well, I think if it's a sort of on-the-street response, or maybe in social media, if you will, probably not the best place to debate these things, but um, I think that the real quick response is, show me where. Because more often than not, when people make these claims, they're making them because they've heard a contemporary, I'm using air quotes, though you can't see that. They're learning that from some contemporary scholar. It's Typically, it's a Bart Ehrman, or maybe it's if it's an older person who's familiar with like the Da Vinci Code of Dan Brown or something, they've gotten these ideas from secondary sources. If you go to those original sources, and with the with the internet, it's not hard to access the stuff in the English language. One of the things that's really surprising is that the alleged parallels or places that Christians must have borrowed from are really unclear. When you go to these sources the allegations that there there are all these virgin births and that there are all these really more than coincidental parallels between Christianity and pagan religions, that claim, when you look at these sources, just really does not ring true. At best, these pagan sources that say that there was a deity who died and after a little while, rose again. There's nothing that actually, no real pagan religion that says exactly that. They basically are kind of a religious interpretation of the agricultural cycle. And reading the primary sources becomes abundantly clear. So I would say that when the claim is made that Christianity must have borrowed, the the real quick response is maybe something like, Well, I've heard people make that claim, but can you show me exactly where or how that is the case? And at the very least, that'll buy you some time when the person goes back and and looks at their sources. They'll they'll probably come back and say, yeah, either I couldn't find something or maybe I was wrong in believing that in the first place. If Jesus wasn't divinely conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, what difference does it make? Well... A lot. <laughs> um, so there, I think if the virgin birth makes is if it's questioned or if we're uncertain about that particular thing for whatever reason, it would by extension mean that we were uncertain about the the uh, orthodoxy of the classic Christian confessions, in particular the Nicene Creed for, or, or the Apostles' Creed. It would also mean that Matthew and Luke, but by extension, the rest of the New Testament, and I'd say by extension, the Messianic prophecies, and I'm thinking here of Isaiah 7.14, it should, I guess, by force of logic, cause us to question the legitimacy of that. And once you start questioning that, because you just find it hard to believe in a virgin birth, well, then, then, I mean, somewhere along the line, you have to ask yourself, you know, well, why do you believe in the resurrection? That too is is miraculous and defies human experience. And and so if you deny the virgin birth, it's probably not too much further than you start questioning equally cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, but most notably, I would say, the resurrection of Jesus. And if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, that's the end of it. Uh, Christianity, as Paul would tell us, not true if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You said that in answer to the question, 
you know, how should we respond if someone says Christianity borrowed the idea of the divine conception from pagan legends? You gave us kind of the quick or the social media answer. What would the more scholarly response be? Good question. Um, I guess I would point in a scholarly kind of a context, point uh, people to the work of the specialists here. These are not Christian apologists. These are just historians doing their thing, so to speak. Ronald Nash would be one. The book is, I believe, The Gospel to the Greeks, where it goes through all the Greco-Roman myths that are alleged source material for the early Christian um, story, if you will. And then Edwin Yamauchi, who was a, a scholar of Mithraism par excellence, but on ancient mythology generally. Uh, and he's got, I want to say, over a dozen books on the subject. And the interesting thing with their findings, and these are recent scholars, is they make a couple points. One is that this persistent claim out there, even amidst scholars, that Christians borrowed things from Greco-Roman mythology, borrowed things like the virgin birth, but also the other events of Jesus' life, just cannot be sustained by a serious scholar anymore. In the, the late 19th, early 20th century, there were, before people started focusing on this, it was a plausible claim, because nobody had really done the work in investigating this. But now that you get to the other side of the 20th and now into the 21st century, Every alleged source that early Christians borrowed from has shown to be just simply, or that that allegation is simply shown to be unfounded. There's just no way to make a jump from like an Egyptian Isis and Osiris myth to Christianity. We might also say, though, like logically speaking, just because there are some alleged parallels in Christianity, which came after these these uh, earlier mythologies, just because something comes after something doesn't necessarily mean that prior thing was the cause of it. They call that the the fallacy of post hoc ergo propter hoc. I mean, that's how I'd at least start the scholarly conversation. But getting into the sources, I mean, I think it is, we're, we're living in a day and age where Christians, I think, need to be a little more aware of how they can answer the question why they believe what they believe, not just what they believe, but why they believe it in the public arena at the Thanksgiving table or Christmas dinner table or, or have you. I really think Christians really need to beef up their, their um, ability in Christian apologetics in some way. And so it probably would behoove us to maybe poke around and become familiar with some of the, the myths that pervaded the ancient Greco-Roman world for not just apologetic reasons, but because that's the context in which Christianity was born. So what you'll find is the more you learn about pagan Greece and Rome, the more you learn about the backdrop in which Christianity began to take shape. So it'll have sort of the double benefit of making you or, or preparing you for those questions people might have of the Christian faith or the truthfulness of the Christian faith, but also, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, enlighten your or give you an increasing amount uh, or more information on the context in which Paul um, defended and proclaimed the gospel in an oftentimes pagan environment. 
Dr. Adam Francisco is adjunct professor of history at Concordia University, Chicago, and scholar-in-residence and director of academics for 1517. Adam, thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. Friday on Issues Etc. and Issues Etc. Tradition, what's your favorite Christmas hymn and why? You can submit your vote via email, talkback at issuesetc.org, at Facebook, facebook.com slash issuesetc, Twitter, at issuesetc, or via the Issues Etc. comment line, 618-223-8382. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. The Third Commandment teaches us to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We do this when we hold God's Word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Jesus invites the weak and heavy laden to rest in Him, our true rest, because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This weekend, rest in Jesus as you hear His Word and receive His gifts. If you are in Southern Illinois, you're invited to join Trinity Lutheran Church in Milstadt to rest in the grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Learn more at trinitymilstadt.org.